0: is bringing up all of these issues and if you're not careful and I've heard some people say, well, you know, this has been kind of a negative book and I get that and I understand that but the fact of the matter is if we've ever listened to ourselves, we're pretty negative people. <laughs> we complain about a lot of stuff. So, But Solomon, what he wants to do is he wants to download to us wisdom. Look, this, this is what I've learned. I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I've made. Therefore, I want to give you some wise words of encouragement and today's title is I want to give you wise words of encouragement to help you navigate your way through life because life can be very confusing life can be very difficult at times it can be very hard it can be very joyful it can be you know there can be mountaintop experiences but there are mountaintops there's valleys and there's everything in between so we're going to be looking at chapter 8 today we're going to cover the entire chapter as we are We've got about three more weeks in this book, and then we're going to wrap that up and begin a brand new series on Easter Sunday. So on July the the 16th, actually, in 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of late President John Kennedy, uh, boarded his airplane along with his wife and his sister-in-law, and they were making their way down the coastline of Connecticut towards Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts in order to attend a family wedding. And during that flight, a fog had come in, they were flying at night. Now the thing you need to know about John Kennedy Jr. is that he was not licensed as a, as a pilot who, um, he, was, he was only licensed as a visual pilot, that is you could see what, what's in front of you, what's around you, he was not licensed in using gauges, relying upon gauges or flying purely by gauges, in that flight, and so they took off at night. The fog moved in. He became disoriented. Uh, as they discovered the wreckage, they don't they they believe that he thought he was ascending when he was actually descending, and the plane crashed. And he, his wife, and his sister-in-law all lost their life in that in that in that crash. And it is um, it was a tragedy at that time. And as I thought about that, my my son-in-law's father. Um, retired, he was an Air Force pilot, and then he flew for Delta for 40 years. And I asked him about this situation. I says, "Well, what does that mean? Uh, why, why this visibility, low visibility, non visibility? What does a pilot do when you have no visibility? You've ever been on an airline? I've I've flown many, you know, commercial as." Uh, you know, flights overseas, and sometimes you're in thick fog, you're in the clouds, they can't see anything in front of them. What if there's another plane coming? He says, well, you have to fly according to the gauges on the panel. You, You have to rely upon the gauges because they do not lie. They tell you whether your plane is up, down, all around, whether there are other planes around you and those who are talking to you over the headphones. He says you're constantly aware. But when you have no visibility, you have to rely on the gauges in order to navigate through that situation. You You do not, regardless of what your instincts are telling you, you follow what the gauges are indicating. Now, many times in our lives it is like going through a fog for us when circumstances become hard and difficult when loved ones around you are dying when there is a tumultuous events happening maybe you lost your job maybe you have received the report from the doctor that you have a terminal illness there are a lot of things and what solomon has done is in this book he has forced us to face up to the fact that life is not always fair, life is not always easy, and oftentimes in the unfairness and the uneasiness, the fogginess of life, we have a lot of questions for God, but God rarely answers those questions as to why we're in this situation. And so this is what this whole book has been about. And how the question I want to answer and tackle this morning is, how do you keep from crashing and burning in your faith When you can't see what's going on or why it's going on or why this is happening to you, you're asking God questions and you're praying and you're seeking his heart and you're seeking his mind, but he does not seem to be answering because as a pastor, I've watched hundreds of people walk away from the faith because their life was in a fog and something happened, something tumultuous, something very devastating, and they're trying to figure out, they're trying to navigate through that process and and that event in their life, and they can't figure it out and they're asking God questions, they're not receiving answers, and they finally just like, you know what, I'm done, I give up, I'm walking away, and their faith crashes and burns. And this happens to believers all the time. So the answer to that question is you have to learn how to navigate through life by continually looking at the navigation panel that God has given us. The navigation panel God has given us is very simple. It is God's Word and it is God's wisdom. The reason why God has given you His Word, He says these are the gauges by which you are to navigate your life. I've equipped you with the Holy Spirit to help take those, the, the truth of my Word and to make application of that Word in your everyday living what we call wisdom. Now on your outline, here's how I'm kind of defining wisdom for this this message wisdom is a truth that you believe it's a truth that you hold on to wisdom does not shift by outward circumstances or does it shift by the opinions of others James and James chapter 1 says listen when you and I need wisdom we are to ask God for wisdom and he he loves to give us wisdom he loves to give us direction Doesn't say God's necessarily going to answer all of our why questions, but he can help us navigate even when he doesn't through wisdom. And the reason why wisdom is so important, James says, because if we're not navigating through life on the basis of God's word and wisdom, we are going to be tossed back and forth like every wind you know, just back and forth, and and the, the opinions of others, and how circumstances shift, and we're going to be all over the map as a follower of Jesus, trying to figure out life, trying to navigate through life, and the end result is probably at some point in time you're just going to call it quits, or at best you just kind of you just kind of stop, right? People fall out of church; um, they no longer engage in the things of God, and so life just kind of goes on. So what are the, what are the, the, the uh, wisdom statements that Solomon gives to us in this chapter that helps us navigate through the fogginess of life so that your faith and my faith will not crash and burn? And listen, I've heard many people say, well, that will never happen to me. I'm going to tell you what, life can get so difficult and so shattering and, and so um, painful, it can happen to you if you're not prepared. I've seen it happen to many people who I thought would never happen to. And yet, to this day, they still will not darken the door of a church. They don't want to talk about the things of God. They're angry with God. They're frustrated with God. They're bitter towards God. And so their faith has crashed and burned. Even in the book of Hebrews, that book reminds us of that possibility in our lives. So here's number one. Wisdom. Wisdom sees life through a different set of lenses. Now, I have have glasses on, so obviously I have clear lenses. I'm looking at life through these lenses. If I were to put on my prescription sunglasses, uh, based upon the color of that, I would see through, you know, a different set of lenses. I would see things differently. And so Solomon says, a wise person is illumined, and there's so much joy on their face because of what God has shown. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. In other words, Solomon says when we when we look at life and navigate in life through the lens of wisdom that God offers to us through his word, through the through the Holy Spirit, he says, Man, it, it illuminates on our face. There's so much joy there because there are things I know that I never knew before that helped me in my navigation through life. And so the the question is, hey, if you are lacking joy in your life, the first thing you ought to ask yourself, am I soaking in the word of God? Am I navigating in life through the wisdom of God as I'm soaking in the word of God? Because this is what helps me to maintain joy. Remember, joy is not a happy feeling. It's not happiness. That's different from joy. Joy is the deep-seated knowledge that no matter what it is I'm going through, God is at work in my life through that circumstance, through that event, through that person, whatever it is I'm facing. So Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Watch this, do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own wisdom, especially when life is getting hard for you. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That is the Lord. How do I acknowledge the Lord? I acknowledge the Lord by soaking in his word and walking in his wisdom. And he says, then I will make your path straight. I will help you navigate through this difficult time in your life. And you're going to get out on the other side. I will have done a work deep within you that will forever change you if you will just keep walking with me and not give up. This is what Solomon is is saying to us. A person who has biblical wisdom is assured of what is right. There, There is no greater privilege than to understand some things. Like yesterday, we had a memorial service here for Marilyn Adams. There are a lot of people here and a lot of people who are saved and many people who are not saved. How, how wonderful is it for me to be able to stand here and say, you know what, I know with all certainty because God tells me and God gives us the wisdom that, listen, we know where we've came, we came from. We know that God created us. We know that God created us with a purpose. We know that we can live out his destiny in our life here on earth. We know that when we die, when we draw our last breath, we don't have to wonder about where we're going. We don't have to wonder about what happens after death. We know that in Christ Christ, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. How wonderful and how joyful is it to know those things as opposed to not knowing those things. And you're just sitting there and you're wondering, well, what is life all about? And who is God? And and why does he seem so cranky all the time? And, you know, then Jesus came along. He seemed a little more pleasant. But, you know, I, I don't understand how his death 2,000 years ago can affect my life in the here and now. And what does it have to do with afterlife? And what, what is afterlife anyways? What is out there beyond? And who can know that? Do you see the contrast and the difference? It's huge. And Solomon says, "This is man, this is, brings joy to us because we're facing many things in life, many difficult issues in our society today that we must face those issues through the lens of God's word and God's wisdom. I'm going to touch on one hot button issue for just a few moments just to give you some clarity here. We have a bill being proposed in our government that will allow a five-year-old child to bypass parental consent as to whether or not they can begin taking hormone replacement drugs and eventually have a sex change operation, a male to female or female to male. Who in the world would allow a five-year-old to determine what their destiny ought to look like? Have you been around five-year-olds? They can't even decide what they want for breakfast, let alone should they be male or female. And so here this bill is, and bypassing parents... And so gender confusion is nothing new, but our approach is about to take a radically different direction if this bill passes. We know statistically that children who have gender confusion left on their own, 90% of them will work that out on their own by the age of 18 to 19. We also know that John Hopkins University many years ago stopped doing gender transition operations because the suicide rate became so high you can change all you want on the outside but you cannot change your dna right so the dna is who you really are and you may make alterations but it just doesn't alter what's really going on inside of you because in this question that is confronting us as a nation that's confronting us as churches is that you always do what Jesus did. You always go back to God's original design. Whatever questions Jesus was asked about issues such as this, he goes back to God's original design and says, here's how God designed it. Anything outside of that design is sin. Sin always leads to brokenness. Brokenness always leads to coping mechanisms. And the answer to your problem and your brokenness is never to change your identity. It is to come to the gospel. And let God fix you. Because here's what the Bible says. Here's what the word of God says. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14. For you God created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So who assigned our gender? God did. Now remember. Everything God creates. Satan counterfeits everything. People say, well, but that's the way they feel. Where are those feelings coming from? The way you think. Now watch this. Satan attacks God's creation with faulty thinking, lie-based, faulty thinking that results in lie-based, faulty feelings that results in lie-based, faulty living. If you want to change the way you feel, you have to change the way you think. And if you want to think truth, you have to find truth in God's word, not in the world and the culture around us that Satan oversees. Satan seeks to destroy self. He seeks to destroy the family. He seeks to destroy the church. He seeks to destroy society. He seeks to destroy through even the government if he possibly can. That's just what he does. And so the Bible says that in Romans chapter 1, all of this stems from a deprived mind, a depraved mind. And so when we approach such issues, I have to approach them from the perspective of what does God's word say? What is the wisdom of God in this matter? Now, I will say this very quickly. In no way, shape, or form does that mean somebody who is struggling with their gender identity. I am to condemn them. I'm not to prejudice myself against them. I am to bring to the table what Jesus always brought to the table, and that is both truth and grace. And so for me or anyone else, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen, this is not the... When the woman at the well was confronted with Jesus, he didn't say to her, you know, uh, I condemn you for what you've been doing. No, he just simply said, you know what, there's a better way. I can give you living water that when you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. This is the essence of what we are as a church. We are to bring to bear to every situation the gospel of Jesus Christ because only Jesus has the power to change a person's life. And so I've I've watched Christians tweet things and post things that make my, my skin crawl, quite frankly. What in the world are you doing? God has called us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. You let Jesus begin to sort out all that is going on inside of them. Because if you have a short memory, uh, most of us had a lot of bad stuff going on inside of us before we came to the faith in Jesus Christ. And it's been a long time in trying to remake us from what we are to what we, what we were to what we are today. And he's got a long way to go yet. So we bring grace and we bring truth and so the lens through which I navigate is the word of God and wisdom. Here's the second wisdom statement that he gives us is that wisdom always surrenders to authority. Wisdom surrenders to authority. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence, do not stand up for bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, "What are you doing?" Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and a procedure for every matter through a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Now the command of the king was meant to be obeyed because the king was to position himself under the authority and the leadership of God. This is what King Saul was supposed to do. This is what King David was supposed to do. This is what King Solomon was supposed to do. And under... Being under the umbrella of the authority of God over him, he was to rule the nation of Israel as God began pouring into him and through him as he, he was in that position of authority over them. And during that time, the Jewish people swore an allegiance before God and the king that they would follow him and obedience to him. And Solomon is reminding us, that we are called to obey the authority that is over us. Now, here's what I want to unpack something. There are four levels of authority in God's kingdom. Right? Four levels of authority. The one theme in the Bible is this, the glory of God through the advancement of his kingdom. And so the authority of God's kingdom is the visible manifestation of God's authority in our lives in every area of our life. For example, in Romans 13:1, it says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, notice the plural here, authorities plural. In other words, there's more than one. And this multiple concept of delegated authority is really patterned after the Trinity. You have one God who has diversity, three persons. And so here's how God has designed the kingdom of which you and I are a part of. I want you to understand why God is asking us to submit ourselves under the authorities that are placed over us. And we all have authorities over us, right? Here's the very first one, the very basic one. It is individual government, when I self-government. When I say government, I'm talking about the authority. That is, you, you self-govern yourself. That means... You're the only one who can control your attitudes. You're the only one who control, can control your actions. I can't do it for you. Nobody else can do it for you. You have to learn how to self-govern. Where, where do I find my self-governing principles? I find them in the Word of God, right? This is why God's given us the Word. It is His manual for kingdom citizens. Right? God says, this is how I want you to self-govern because nobody else can do that for you. So the way you speak, the things that you do, um, the attitudes that you have, all of that form a foundation of self-government or self-leadership over you. And so I can't, listen, if I fail to self-govern and I do things like say I commit sin, I can't blame anybody else, I can't justify what I've done because it was me and me alone Who made the decision to do whatever it is I did that has created this hurt or pain or consequence in my life? I give you an example. I I read an article. (laughs) This is—I can't believe this guy. (laughs) He's a pastor. Firestorm broke out. He he stood before his congregation and he he was preaching. I don't know if he was preaching on marriage or whatever. But here's the statement he said. He said, "Ladies, I want you to know." The reason why your husbands stray away from you is because you guys let yourself go over the course of your lifetime. I got a lot to say about that, but I'll keep it. (laughs) Number one, that dude took a stupid pill. That's all I know. He just (laughs) took a stupid pill is all I can say. Number two, they showed a picture of this guy. Now, if you're going to make an abrasive statement like that, you ought to, you know, at least be sporting a six-pack, looking like Brad Pitt or whatever. This guy looked like he let himself go. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Thirdly, what is he doing? He's, he is enabling someone who's supposed to be self-governing yourself to shift blame on somebody else, to, to justify his actions. That is as old as the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what Adam did with Eve. Lord, it's that woman you gave me. I'm telling you, it's her fault. You had to give me her. This would have never, I would have never eaten of that apple, I, fruit. I, I would have never sinned against you. What did God say? Well, I ain't buying that, right? So he turns to Eve and Eve to the serpent, and you get the, you get the gist. So God says, I've given you my word because I want to I help you self-govern in the area of your life where you have a tendency not to govern yourself well. So, for example, um, the Bible is, su- is supremely authoritative. Why? Because it is the voice of God in print. The Bible supremely authoritative because it's the voice of God in print, and it God operates by his word in his kingdom, which means God's word is God's divine blueprint by which we are to live our lives. It is God's divine benchmark by which we are to make decisions in our lives. I should filter every decision, everything I'm about to do through God's word so that I self govern well. Do you know that you could radically change the world if people would self-govern and just kept the Ten Commandments? The world. You see, the 613 stipulations that God gave to the Ten Commandments was just to help the Jewish people to live those out. When Jesus was asked about it, he just pared it down says, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. And even Solomon, when at the end of this book, he's going to say, listen, fear God, keep his commands, because this applies to every single person. This is what God has given to us to self-govern, and we have to learn how to do that, because if we don't, it affects my family, which affects my church, which affects my society, which affects my government, which affects my country. The f- second form is that of family government, all right? if, if As a parent, it was, was my duty to teach my children the values, the morals, and the ethics of God's word. Listen to me, parents. That is not the responsibility of the church. The church can aid you as a family, but we're not responsible. Listen, you spend a whole lot more time with your kids than we do. We only have them for a short period. And it, listen, you have more influence over your children than I would ever have. So as as a father, it was my responsibility to help my kids, you know, understand God's word and, you know, get the morals, the values, the ethics. Now, most times families think, well, how do you do that? How, How do you effectively do that? And sometimes we think, well, you got to have family devotions, and many people do, and some of the people do those that are effective. I just didn't find them too effective. Here's the way we did it. We did it around our dinner table. We had conversations. We weren't looking at our phones. Of course, back in that day, we probably didn't have iPhones, but uh, nonetheless, TV wasn't on. We had conversations, and we asked our kids about their day and about their life, and And when things came up that intersected with the the Word of God, we would say, you know, I wonder what God says about that. Let's talk about what God might say about that and, and help them not just to learn God's Word, but to walk in God's wisdom by integrating it into their everyday lives. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. Give your children the Word of God early in life, and even if they take a left turn somewhere... You have given the Holy Spirit ammunition to hook them back and draw them back into their walk with, with the God who created them. Then there's thirdly, there's church government. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 says the church leaders have charge over the flock of God. 1 Timothy 5:17 says elders are responsible to rule. The, author of Hebrews says the members of the church are to obey and submit to their spiritual leaders. That does not mean that a spiritual leader is to be some kind of domineering, overbearing, you, you know, my way or the highway kind of person. I, am, I, as a pastor, am to be under the rulership, the leadership of God himself, and God will hold me accountable as to how I led this church at the end of my life. I will have to give an account for what I did and how I did it and why I did it. I understand it. I get that. But again... The church's purpose is to help you to learn how to self-govern so that you take self-governance into your family and the family into into the church. And so the point is simply this, is that the church can't spoon-feed you all of your life. My, my role is to help you learn how to spoon feed yourself. When my children were little, I spoon fed them. When they were babies, we fed them, you know, up until they could start feeding themselves. Did they get it right? No. I mean, my goodness, you ever given a three-year-old spaghetti? They got spaghetti sauce all over their face, their body. Their, I mean, It's everywhere, right? It's a mess. And so as you're discipling people, you're learning them, teaching them how to eat and how to spoon feed themselves. And they may make a whole mess of things, but they keep learning and they keep growing and they keep maturing until eventually they become an adult and they're spooning themselves. And not only are they feeding themselves, but now they can in turn feed somebody else who's that back here in infancy in their spiritual walk with God. It's called discipleship. Disciples making disciples who make Disciples. This is what the purpose of the church is. And so the church is the most formal, formidable institution on the earth. It is the only, the church is the only entity that has been commissioned by the Lord to be its representative agency. It has been given the sole authority to unlock the treasures of the spiritual realm and to bring them to bear here in the physical realm. We are God's representatives we are kingdom citizens our kin our citizenship is not necessarily in America, though we have a citizenship in America, but it is in in the kingdom, and we're here to advance the kingdom. We are here to represent the kingdom. We are here to bring the kingdom to bear upon the things that are happening all around us, and it is the model that God has given to us. And so the Bible says, both in the Old and New Testament, that we ought to live this model in such a way that even the ungodly will say, you know what? I may not agree with everything you're saying, but I'll tell you what, it does make sense sense, and it really does seem to be the best way to live. Number four civil government. In essence, our leaders are to uphold and carry out God's standards in all civil arenas. For instance, God forbids murder, right? So if somebody murders somebody, it is up to the government to make sure that that person is justly uh, incarcerated and the punishment is paid for the, the, the crime that has been committed. And so the government, the, our national government, you know, has been founded upon the principles of God. But when you begin to remove those principles within the framework of your government, not just our government, any government, now all of a sudden things begin to change. Um, And a lot of things are changing in America at a very rapid rate. And so what happens, according to Romans 1, is that when you start removing God out of everything, God says he pours out his wrath. doesn't mean that he pours fire down from heaven to to earth. It means that he just gives you over to what it is you desire and allows you to suffer the consequences of your actions. And if you look through Romans 1, all of a sudden, mentally... The depraved mind begins to disintegrate until now we can no longer distinguish between what is reality and what is not. When we've come to the day and time when I have to think here on TV that people can't figure out the, uh, the sexual identity of Mr. Potato, we've, we've digressed, okay? And yesterday I heard that Pepe Le Pew incites a culture for rape. Who in the world constructed that? This is how far we have disintegrated in the the depravity of our minds. And these are becoming real hot-button issues. So what if the civil government is harsh? What if it's not following God's laws in any way, shape, or form? What what are we supposed to do? Well, when Paul wrote Romans 13 and Peter wrote his books concerning our... um, the authority of the, the government over us. Guess who was in authority over them in the gov- their government, in Rome? Caesar Nero. He was not a kind guy. Uh, he persecuted the Christians. He, he torched Christians to light up his festivities, uh, and, and so what did they say? Did they say that we are to storm the government and overthrow the government? That's not what it says. The Bible says that you are to honor the authority that has been placed over you uh, the, the only reason we, the only way we ha, are, can have civil disobedience is if the government is asking me to do something that is in direct violation of God's word. Kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in the Old Testament, and they were supposed to bow down before the king and worship him. They said, so We ain't bowing before you. We don't bow before anybody but Yahweh God. And he says, Well, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. Well, let it be, buddy. Uh, we know that our God has the ability to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to you, king. And so that was civil disobedience. So what do we do? You respect authority. It's a struggle for all generations. Those of us who grew up in the 60s, it was all about drugs, sex, rock and roll. We called the police pigs and we, we hated every government institute there was. It was just rebellion. Every generation has their own little sense of rebellion of authority over them. So, what does Solomon tell us to do? I'm just, this is not on your outline. I'm just going to list them out because I need to move on. But here's how. Here's what God says we are to do in response to the government. If the authority over us becomes harsh, and and, and it's not like we want it to be. I mean, certainly we are to pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us we're to pray for our government leaders. We certainly ought to engage ourselves in, in, you know, in the political realm in that. You need to be informed. You have the power to vote. But how, what are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, you honor God in all you do. All right, You honor God in everything you do is what Solomon says. You may not agree with your, your president. You may not agree with your government officials. But you are to honor them because as you honor them, you are honoring God and God will reward you for that even though they not, may not be acting like you want them to act or making the right decisions that you think ought to be made. You're still to honor that authority. So as Christians, this is why we're not called to go out and shoot a doctor who is an abortionist. That's not God's way. There are many ways we can effectively fight against abortion, but that ain't one of them because that is not honoring God. God says we're not to murder. Number two, remember that those in power wield authority that is real and God-given. The Bible says God is the one who sets kings and queens upon their thrones, and when God's done, he'll take them off, right? So I've, I've heard this over and over again. It started with Obama, he's not my president, Trump's not my president, Biden's not my president. Listen, if God sets somebody on the throne, they are your president, and in honor to God, you will pray for them. Listen, Jesus even said of your enemies, you ought to do good towards them, pray for them, and honor them, right? So why would we look at somebody who God has set upon a throne, so to speak, dishonor them by, and thus dishonor the Lord. I'm not saying that you may be happy about the person, but here's what's happening in the Christian realm, is that we're all out there on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we're all voicing our opinions harshly. I mean, Christians are at each other's throats. This is not the way to honor God. It is not the way to display the kingdom. And listen, the very people you've been called to reach When they read that stuff, all they're thinking in their mind is, well, unless I think like them, become like them, I will not be accepted by them. Therefore, I will not listen to them. And we're disregarding a lot of people out there that need Jesus because we want to fight some political battle on social media. I'm telling you, church, that is something that Satan can put his hand into I'm not saying you can't voice your opinion on something, but I'm trying to tell you what, you better be very, very careful. Here's my third one. Pick your battles prayerfully. Not every hill is worth dying on, is what Solomon says. And he also says, do not participate in ungodly plots and schemes. And there are many plots and schemes that are out there now that are going, in other words, before you jump on somebody's bandwagon, you might want to check out what they actually believe and teach because what's up, you know, what's, what's put out there in the front may not be, that might just be a cover-up as to what their actual agenda is. And number five, look for a God-given time and process, Solomon says, in which you can seek to do the right thing in the right way in the right time for the right reason. I'm not saying that we should not engage in politics. We need Christians in politics. I'm not saying you should not be informed about politics. I'm just simply saying the primary message of the church of Jesus Christ is not America. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the kingdom of God. That is our mission, and that is our mandate, and that must be priority in our lives. I've had many people sit me down and say, I want to know what your political views are. Really? Uh, Probably not. Um, Why don't you ever preach about it in church? Why don't you have people come and, and share in church? It's not my message. My message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No government has the power to change a life. The only person who has the power to change a life, to take a sinner and make them a saint, to take somebody who is dead spiritually and bring them back to life, to navigate them through life as he's transforming their lives into the power of the gospel, is Jesus and Jesus alone and no one else. And that is our message. Number three, wisdom finds security in the sovereignty of God. Listen, there are a lot of things that I see going on as well as you that are very upsetting. And you're thinking, this isn't fair, this isn't right, but you have to trust in God's sovereignty. The word sovereignty means God is in control. Ultimately, there are so many things that you and I have no control over. So what Solomon says, he says in verse 7, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has the power over the wind to contain it. No one has power over the day of his death. No one is, is discharged in time of, of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. And so Solomon is saying, in essence, for the sake of time, listen, you, we have got to trust God who rules over everything. There's, there's so much that is outside of our control. Exam- he gives you an example. You can't control when you're going to die. God didn't put, bring you into the world and stamp your expiration date on your foot. We don't know. I may die tomorrow. It might be next year. It may be five years. I have no idea. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over his creation. God is bringing history to a climax that he has already foreordained to happen, and it will happen, and God is the one who will move all the characters where they need to be, and although times might get tough and our days ahead may be difficult, it doesn't matter even if we are persecuted for our faith in the future, it doesn't matter. We are still kingdom citizens who are to tell people about Jesus. God has to take care of all those other things. I've got to trust that. Otherwise, you will go absolutely bonkers trying to figure it out and trying, well, how can we manipulate this, and how can we change this, and how can we make this different? God sees, God knows, and God will justly Bring everything in accordance to his will and his plan and his purpose. I have to trust that. Number four, wisdom is satisfied knowing that justice will prevail in the end. God is the one who brings justice to all things. So look how Solomon describes it. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise. Now, what did he call these people? The wicked. In other words, here's somebody. Yeah, and they were going out in and out of the temple, in and out of the house of worship. You know, maybe they were a, a leader in the church, but they were wicked in their heart. Then they're just like going back and forth, like it's no big deal. Then too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place to receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. And when the sentence of a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and is still living a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well for them, and their days will will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. And here's the point. What Solomon is saying is the world is filled with injustice. Because we're created in the image of God, God is a God of justice. We want justice and we want it now. We want immediate, we want it now, and we want it fully Unless it's towards us, right? So if, if I benefit from injustice, I'm okay with that. Like if I'm, if I'm speeding and I'm breaking the law and a police officer pulls me over and rather than giving me a ticket, he just gives me a warning. Justice says you should have given me a ticket, but he just gives me a warning. I'm okay with that injustice. Are you? Of course you are. But when it's something personal, when, it's, when it affects my life or somebody I love, and so the injustice has been done towards them, then we want immediate ratification. We want immediate justice. And so Solomon just kind of paints... Some different pictures here, and he's saying, listen, there are people who are doing all kinds of crimes. Why is it they get to live a long time, and people who are, who are walking a godly life don't get to live such a long time? And, and why is it when these guys get the end of their life and they die, everybody says very flowery things about them, even though none of those things are true. They were wicked at heart. They did wicked things, and they plotted and they schemed. I don't understand. This is meaningless. This is purposeless. But notice the key here, he says, but God-fearing men, verse 12, who are Reverent before God. And what he, he unpacks there is listen, there's a difference between a godly life and an ungodly life, and, and that is to remember God rather than to forget God. He says, in the end, in the end, even though it may seem that injustice has won, in the end, there's a new sheriff that's going to come in town. His name is Jesus. And he's going to become riding on a white stallion. And when he comes to this earth, he is going to take every just injustice that has ever been done and it will all be judged. And those who were evil, they're just simply stacking up God's wrath against them that they will one day have to pay for in eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Nobody gets away with anything. God is the rightful, just judge. And he will make all things right. And Jesus will establish his a kingdom on Earth for a thousand years, and He will rule and He will reign. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if there were no prisons, police officers in the world? Don't you think people live differently when they know that they are going to be held accountable for something? Of course they do. And so it should be with us. My reverence for God is knowing. This is why I'm living life backwards. I know what my end is. I'm going to die. I know that I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to give an account for my life. And he's going to reward me or I'll lose rewards on the basis of what I've said and done and all these things. I I, I get that. I understand that. So as I live my life backwards, I let God's word and wisdom be the director and the guide of my life, the benchmark of the decisions that I'm making and the navigation point in my life so that I can live my life the best I possibly can. I know I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. But hopefully over time I'm becoming more and more like Jesus so when I stand before Jesus, I stand before him unashamed. Here's number five, and we're closing. Wisdom doesn't allow what you cannot control tomorrow spoil today. And Solomon says in verse 15, So I commend, I, I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man than the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life God has given him under the sun. You know what Solomon's saying? I know life is not always fair. I know that justice is not always done. You need to take a chill pill, take a breath, and enjoy the life you have while you have it. Eat, drink, enjoy your friends, enjoy your family. Listen, the wisest thing most of us could do, you need to unplug your Fox News, your CNN, your talk radio, because all that does is get you all stirred up, your blood pressure goes up, your angst goes up, and there's not a single thing you can do about anything they're talking about. Why in the world do you want to live your life constantly all ramped up over that when there's nothing you can do? And by the way, that is not even our priority in life. Our priority is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if I've offended you, don't worry about it. I'm an equal offender. You have to remember, God is always, always behind the scenes. Always working behind the scenes. And one day, when this world comes to an end, there's only going to be one kingdom, there's only one king, and there's only one throne. And Jesus is the one who sits upon it. So in the meantime, how are we to respond? How are we to prepare ourselves? So I close with this example. There's a man named uh, Nick Ripkin. Nick Ripkin was um, an IMB missionary for many years in parts of the country, um, I think parts of the world where there's severe persecution. And when you put your life on the line for Jesus, that means you're literally putting your life on the line for Jesus. People were executed for their faith. Their homes are taken away from them for their faith. And so he served in that capacity for several years. And then he began to go around interviewing other Christians because it dawned on him, why is it that these people are willing to even give up their life for the cause of their faith? What keeps them going? What keeps them faithful to the Lord, navigating through life, knowing that they may lose everything and have to give up their life, but they will not recant their faith? What is it about them? So one of the places he was was in the underground church in China, and he did an interview, and he wrote a book about this called The Insanity of God. You've never read The Insanity of God. You need to read The Insanity of God. And so in closing, I'm just going to read this, this interview, and I want you to listen to the mindset of these Christians who are willing to lay everything on the line every day of their lives. Here's how the conversation goes. He, he asked believers in China who are sometimes harassed by the police there for gathering for worship how they respond he said they replied the police say hey if you don't stop these meetings we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street to which the church responds do you want my house well then if you do then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave him my property a long time ago and they usually don't know what to make of that answer so they will say something and, well we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. And when we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live, to which they respond, you must do what you must, but then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. And then they, the police say, if you keep this up, we will beat you. The persecutors will tell them, then the church says, then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, and there is their response. And the police say, well, then we'll put you in prison. And by now, the believer's response is pretty predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives, set them free, and we will be free to plant churches in prison. (laughs) If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated police officers say. And the church said, well, then we'll just be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. So go ahead. You can't fight against that, right? Their their faith and trust is so ingrained in the sovereignty and the provision of God, they're willing to lay it all on the line. I'm telling you, the church in America, God's about to separate the wheat from the tares and those who are going to be serious about their faith and who are not going to be serious about their faith. And if you you haven't drawn the line in the sand in your life, you need to start now because you need to be prepared. I don't know what our future holds for our country. I don't know what our future holds, uh, you know. I'm not, I I don't have a crystal ball, but I know who is in control is my Heavenly Father. So my faith and my trust is rooted in Him. And the goal of my life is to continue taking the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We bless you. We adore you. We put our hope, our faith, our trust in you and you alone. God, you are the God of all creation. This is your world. This is your kingdom. We know that there is a rival kingdom, Satan's kingdom, who rivals against your kingdom. But we thank you, O God, that our feet are firmly planted upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and your kingdom that is absolutely immovable. And in the end, we win. But in the meantime, I pray, oh God, for myself, for every person here, for our churches across our nation, across our world, that we will remain faithful, faithful, faithful to your word and to your wisdom and to your will and that we will not let anything or anyone alter our our dependency upon you, our following you, our trusting you, because we know that, God, you love us, you care for us, and regardless of what may happen to us in this life, we rest in Christ because he is the living water. Now, today, may your Holy Spirit enable us to drink from his well and to know that we will never thirst again is my prayer in the name of Jesus. And so if you're watching online, if you've never put your hope, your faith, and your trust or here today in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord of your life personally, God is offering you that gift of grace. It's not something you purchase. It's not something you earn. It's something that God gives to you freely through his Son, the one who died for you, who died in your place, who shed his blood, that he might forgive you, he might that Jesus might satisfy the wrath of God over you so that you could enter into the relationship with the God who created you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he provided a pathway by which you can enter into a personal relationship with him. And the Bible says that when you take that step of faith that God will forgive all of your sin, he will cancel the debt, mark it paid in full, and indwell you with his Holy Spirit who will begin the process of transformation within you. And my friend, you will have taken a drink from the well of living water that will forever quench your thirst. May Jesus be glorified in your life and mine. In his name we pray.